Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Christopher Tomlins, the Elizabeth Jocelyn Bolt Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. His recent books are Freedom Bound, Law, Labor, and Civic Identity in Colonizing English America, 1580-1865, and as of this spring, In the Matter of Nat Turner, A Speculative History, and that is the subject of our conversation today. Christopher Tomlins, welcome to Historically Thinking. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation to talk about uh, my book, In the Matter of Natana. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, and I hope you are well in these times. Yes, I am. Thank you very much. Um, have you found it a productive time, these times? Uh, we At the beginning of it, everyone was saying, well, Shakespeare wrote during the plague, and so-and-so <laughs> did this, and, you know, Boccaccio, of course. Without Boccaccio, there'd be no Chaucer, and that was done during... Uh, have you found this a creative time? Um, not as much as I might have predicted. I yeah, good. I haven't out, either, so... <laughs> you know, I started out uh, finding it sort of slightly... Because it was unusual, it was a little exciting, and then it yeah, became yeah. kind of depressing. Um, yeah, I'm just yeah. waiting for it to end. Yeah, exactly. I've done I, uh, a lot of reading. I don't know about you. Yeah, I've done well. I've done a lot of reading because I've I, I decided I would record lots of conversations because right. there'd be some people that I would never, I would never have a better opportunity of of landing them uh, than in a, a period in which they're desperate to talk to anybody. So uh, <laughs> it's been very helpful that way. Um, so we're going to talk about in the matter uh, the matter of Nat Turner and and the the Southampton Rebellion insurrection. Uh, could you give us a, a t- a pricey of this, you know, uh, what I, you and I both think is an, obviously an extraordinarily important event, um, not just in Virginia or the South, but really in American history. Right. So the rebellion itself, the event uh, for which Nat Turner became famous, uh, really it begins as an event uh, in the very early morning of Monday, August 22nd, 1831. Uh, and it goes on uh, in all for about three days. And over that period of time, um, what uh, was originally a very small group of slaves um, recruited um, by Turner uh, begin a series of attacks upon farm households in Southampton County, and really only in one part of Southampton County, Mm -hmm. uh, the area um, within a radius of about eight miles of the little hamlet of Cross Keys. Um, And uh, over about 12 hours, the group moves from household to household in a relatively systematic fashion. Um, it does not move in a straight line. It is uh, these attacks on uh, the sequence of households um, follows a different kind of logic. 
but there is a pattern to it. And as they go, they recruit um, other slaves to the band, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly. Um, and although the, the, the band kind of fluctuates in number over that period of 12 hours, by the end of this first phase, there are some 40 to 50 people, slaves, involved. And at the end of that period of 12 hours, they have attacked uh, 15 to 16 households, um, the number of households fluctuates because some households, uh, uh, after the rebellion is discovered, people flee, so the households are deserted. Um, so at the end of the first 12 hours, they have attacked uh, 15 or 16 households and killed uh, 55 whites, uh, mostly women and children, and uh, at the end of that phase, Turner uh, and his comrades uh, turn toward the county seat, the town, the little town of Jerusalem, as it's called now, Cortland, mm -hmm. uh, Virginia. And they make their way toward the township. Um, they pause to at a plantation to recruit more, to intend to recruit more participants, um, and at that point they are challenged by the first of several white militia groups that have begun to gather and follow the track of the rebellion. Um, and the next, over the next 24 hours, there's a series of encounters between the group of slaves, the rebels, and uh, uh, white militia groups or armed inhabitants uh, at the end of which uh, the group of slaves uh, has been dispersed, it's fallen to pieces. People uh, in that group are fleeing back toward wherever they came from. Uh, Turner and two or three comrades return to the vicinity of Cross Keys. Uh, his, um, those, those accompanying him desert him. Um, and he remains in hiding for the next two months. Uh, most of the other participants are either killed or captured. And uh, during the time that Turner is in hiding, a series of uh, trials take place that result in the conviction and execution of 18 uh, slaves. Others are sold out of the state. Uh, some, are, some of those who are on trial are found uh, uh, not uh, guilty of uh, participation in the insurrection. Turner himself is captured at the end of October um, and uh, put on trial November 5th, found guilty, sentenced to execution, and he is hanged a week later. So that's the kind of the immediate uh, mm -hmm. sequence of events that, mm -hmm. that we think of when we think of the Turner Rebellion. The, uh, I, I didn't uh, get a sense of this, and I've been wondering this. Have you driven, walked the, the ground there in Southampton County? Uh, no, I haven't, actually. I haven't. <laughs> I'm, yeah. um, uh, we could go on to talk, actually, about, uh, the, uh, 
about William Styron, who actually does yeah. go, um, uh, spends a day in Southampton and finds it disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But no, no I driven, haven't been there. Yeah, I've driven nearby, and it's still, it's, uh, one has the sense uh, when you read the account that we'll be getting to of, hmm, of, I, I, one has a sense of both desolation, but also, of course, there are a lot of houses for them to go to. Right. Um, so that you have a sense when you read a lot of early American sources, uh, you have this idea of what we think of as deserted rural places, or especially at night, always seem to be remarkably active right. um, in a way that one wouldn't expect with our um, presuppositions. Um, uh, these days, it is, it's a very out of the way place. Um, remarkably enough for the eastern United States. Um, no, I'm, I'm familiar with Southside Virginia um, and uh, the immediate area uh, of the rebellion, uh, although I have not. I've studied the landscape and I have studied the sort of topography mm-hmm. uh, of the area and um, also examine photographs of the uh, of the area uh, and and it certainly strikes me as as a as a as a somewhat lonely landscape mm-hmm. um, but as you say um, what appears to be a lonely landscape you know you find uh, houses and farms dotted around uh, in, in, in some number so you do. Let's get to William Styron. You spend a, a chapter um, mostly discussing uh, William Styron's novel. Uh, why? Why do you spend so much time dealing with that as a historian uh, dealing with this historic incident? Uh, really, for two reasons. Um, the first is that um, I am primarily in this book. I am primarily interested in Nat Turner, the in effect the the mind, the intellect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find the person, the historical personage, fascinating. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was drawn to Styron because, in fact, it was through Styron's novel that I first encountered Nat Turner many, many years ago. Um, and in, it's also the case that, 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 that Styron is the last... Styron is really the first person to have given extended attention to creating a kind of image, a, a mentality for Nat Turner. Um, and although you know Turner has been a figure of uh, importance in African American literature um, and African American culture. Uh, for well over a hundred years before Styron you know, turned to it. Um, nevertheless, uh, Styron uh, undertook in his book, you know, uh, an attempt to, to to create a personage that would resonate um, for Americans of his era, and uh, ever since then. Uh, the Turner um, who appeared then in Styron's book 
Uh, I think still is uh, for many people the, the 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 person that they think of when they think of Matt Turner. They the the, the more recent attempt uh, to uh, imagine a Matt Turner that uh, really takes the takes his or peers in Nate Parker's uh, Birth of a Nation, the 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 Fox Searchlight movie. Mm-hmm. is, uh, by comparison, um, a much, uh, a movie can only do so much in two hours that a novelist does over, you know, 400 pages. It's, it's a different kind of level of attention. Um, but even Nate Parker's movie kind of replicates certain elements of the Turner uh experience that, that Styron uh, created in hmm. Uh, his book, Confessions. Um, so it was important to me to to uh, investigate uh, Styron's confessions at some length, uh, all the more so because of Styron's own dis- you know, description of his motivation in undertaking um, his novel. He says, you know, I am, I am, trying to escape, these are not his precise words, but this is you know, the effect of his um, uh, description of what he's attempting to do. He says, I'm trying to escape them, something that is merely a historical novel. And he, he says, um, I think of my book as a meditation on history. Hmm. Well, I find that really interesting. My book is also a meditation on history, not simply a book about Matt Turner. Um, and I kind of start with Styron because I think Styron failed, although his failure is, is a very interesting, you know, it's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. one. It's not, uh, it's not something one dismisses. Uh, it's no, interesting we- to think of why he failed in yeah. his meditation on history. Uh, so that's, that's really the reason why I give Styron attention. And also because, I mean, it's kind of conventional, I suppose, for a historian to think about how other historians and how other people have yeah. engaged with the person that they are interested in. Well, certainly no one has had a greater uh, cultural impact. On, as I thought, as I was reading that chapter, that Styron had done something, had succeeded in one way. He created an entire plausibility structure, uh, which Nat Turner inhabits, uh, and which when you want to write about uh, Nat Turner, it's very difficult not to confront that. Uh, you have to, in, exactly. in effect, you, you, you spend a chapter uh, smashing, trying to smash out of that um, that room in which um, Styron has con- has uh, confined Nat Turner within our historical imagination. I think that's right. I think, um, um, in a way, that's 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 what I think of as the you know. Uh, the graduate, what the graduate student does when the graduate student wants to make room for the graduate student's dissertation in history is you kind of throw a hand grenade yeah. uh, uh, and blast everything out of the way so that there's, there's room for your own. Well, I'm not, I'm not exactly trying to do that. Um, what I am trying to do is to um, investigate how this prior person did what he did and then to say why I think he 
You could say that the attempt is not an ignoble attempt. The outcome is failure, but I think that that failure can inform what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I also have a completely... What's important also to say is that uh, Styron doesn't like the Turner he meets in what he reads. He, does, he rejects the Turner that he meets, and he says, you know... I am going to create a different person, someone that I can admire, mm-hmm. because I cannot admire the person I meet. And for me, that is a kind of cop-out. Uh, the object of my book is really to try to understand the person that one does actually meet rather than to say, I'm going to substitute something else for it. Yes. I And, of course, that is, uh, he might not have wanted to think of himself as a historical novelist, but that is the difference between the novelist uh, writing about the historical past and the historian. Um, Absolutely. Not that, not, not, that, not that we don't often create uh, the past that we prefer, or the characters in the past that we prefer, mm-hmm. um, but uh, we're not supposed to. Um uh, there's a, there, but I think a, a certain dose of intellectual humility uh, is, is involved, um, as opposed to that that the graduate student hand grenade to realize that yes, I can also make the same mistake. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's 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 quite very true. Um, so, the Styron and you had a certain uh, number of sor- Styron encountered Turner as you did, as as we all do when we first read about him in uh, a particular source, and that creates a lot of problems. So what is the source that, as it were, it, it predominates? It's, it, it is confe- this very strange document. Um, could you describe it? Sure. And, and, it's, sure. and it's multiple authors? Sure, sure. The, uh, the first, um, in many ways, the most fascinating, and as you say, in some, in some ways, extremely problematic uh, source that one um, encounters when interested in Nat Turner is Thomas Ruffin Gray's pamphlet, The Confessions of Nat Turner, uh, from which Styron uh, appropriated the title of his own novel, uh, written 130 years later. So Gray is a uh, sort of downwardly mobile uh, young Southampton County attorney um, who, because he's down on his luck, um, conceives of the Turner Rebellion as an opportunity to make some money um, by publishing his pamphlet. Uh, the Confessions of Nat Turner, which is an account both of Turner and of the Turner Rebellion. Um, now that's that's not Gray's that's Gray's primary motivation, I believe, but it's not his only motivation by any means. Uh, for one thing, it's clear that he's he's really just deeply intrigued by, fascinated by the event itself. Uh, he spends uh, a, a lot of time uh, accumulating uh, first-hand knowledge of the 
a sequence of events that we think of as the Turner Rebellion. Um, he is himself involved in one of the militia groups or groups of armed inhabitants that um, responds to news of the rebellion on the 22nd of August as it uh, is in you know, actual, um, as it is going on. Um, and he, as a, as a young attorney, as a, a as an attorney, he is um, court-appointed defender, defense attorney for uh, several of the participants. So he has both a professional interest, a personal interest, and a, in a sense, a financial interest, um, all of which become you know, melded in the writing of the pamphlet. Um, the pamphlet itself is this really quite complex document because um, it, it has numerous components that combine to make it, uh, that combine to, to sort of create this aura of, of authenticity for what the pamphlet actually says. Um, it includes a sort of set of instructions written by Gray in the form of a preface and a kind of afterword, um, instructions to the reader as to how the reader should kind of respond to the content of the pamphlet, and then it uh, consists in the main part uh, of uh, what purports to be a verbatim, uh, a more or less verbatim um, uh, reproduction of the conversation, uh, or more accurately, the monologue um, narrative of the events that is provided by Turner himself, whom Gray visits while he is in jail awaiting trial and execution, uh, and uh, upon whom Gray prevails to enter into this fairly, you know, marathon conversation over uh, approximately three days that uh, results in uh, much of the text of the pamphlet. Um, so I have a, you know, that's that's the main source, and it's problematic uh, for the obvious reason that it's a white attorney's account of a conversation with this slave uh, rebel uh, that has no other authenticity. It has no other authentication. It cannot be independently authenticated except, you know, relatively indirectly through mm. the uh, uh, consultation of other kinds of evidence. And, and we can't even compare it. There's nothing else like it in maybe American history at the time. There are no other slave rebels who 
speak like this to a white man or to anyone else. Uh, the slave, this is, uh, this predates most slave narratives. It's quite, I mean, it's an extraordinary document for all sorts of reasons. Correct. Um, it has I guess been. The closest thing, I guess, I, the closest thing I would compare it to as I was thinking about this was like um, pirate confessions uh, in New England and say the early 18th century yes. uh, done, done by um, pastors, preachers, heavily edited, redacted, and so on. But that's about the closest thing I could think of. I mean, uh, but that's, uh, anyway, go on. No, the, 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 the narrative uh, has been compared to um, Gallo's literature, Gallo's confessions, yeah. uh, which uh, carry some of, the, have something of the same structure, uh, that is, they, they often have a, um, a preface written by a, a white amanuensis followed by what purports to be the autobiographical narrative of this or that, um, um, uh, this or that person who is confessing to a series of crimes and holding up. Uh, himself as uh, example of how a life should not be lived. Um, and those, you know, Gallo's confessions, Gallo's, uh, lit that Gallo's literature uh, has a, you know, a, a, a formal structure and involves many um, uh, African-American criminals. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, it's... It's kind of the, 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 the original autobiographical literature for African-Americans is almost predominantly those forms of Gallo's narrative. Then they're succeeded by slave narratives that have something of the same structure. Um, Turner's uh, confessions kind of sit in between those two genres of text. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think what, what, what is really important about the, the confessions, about the pamphlet, is that it gives us uh, two really quite distinct uh, texts, um, as it were, joined together, uh, uh, a very autobiographical text, um, which includes all kinds of material that uh, Gray could have had no knowledge prior to that conversation. And then um, the pamphlet in its second half really creates uh, this um, literally blow-by-blow -blow account of the rebellion itself. But as I argue in the book, these two elements through halves of what purports to be a single monologue are actually written in very different ways um, and really, you know, constitute two quite distinct texts. Well, why, why, why is that other than the fact that um, Gray is transcribing Turner's thoughts? I think in the first half he is close to transcribing turn, what Turner actually says, and I closer I, than we often think. Yes, uh, and I try to point out how just looking at the structure of the narrative, one can see uh, differences between a first half, which is um, uh, really 
composed in a quite elementary and rather clumsy way, which I argue comports with um, somebody who has literally scribbled down notes as the um, other party in the conversation speaks. Uh, and then if they have been transcribed uh, into a kind of second draft, they have been transcribed hastily. So the punctuation is extraordinarily elementary. Sentence structure and syntax and grammar and so forth are all much cruder uh, than in the second half. Uh, the second half, which is the half that comprises the stuff that Gray has prior knowledge uh, of, which is you know, the sequence of events that comprises the rebellion itself, is written so much more smoothly with um, you know, uh, quite sophisticated sentence construction, complete sentences, proper syntax, proper grammar, and so on, um, that uh, the two halves seem to me to comprise one that is actually constructed from a conversation in the time of the narrative itself, that is the narrative given in the jail cell, and one in which uh, Gray has already um, um, written or thought about a great deal and in which he's seeking confirmation, uh, plus perhaps uh, a degree of um, uh, additional description uh, from Turner's point of view. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this, so, so that, that's the confessions. And of course, there isn't actually a whole lot else. Yeah. Um, there are newspaper reports about it. Uh, newspaper reports are probably the second best single uh, uh, kind of narration of the events of the rebellion. Uh, there's a certain amount of... Um, governmental documentation um, there, that is local governmental in, in, in terms of the trial record and uh, state level documentation in terms of the uh, reactions of the governor's office and the governor himself in his diary um, there are um, um, it's a certain amount of correspondence uh, that is relevant. And apart from that, we have um, really not a whole lot that's directly on point for uh, Turner or the events of the rebellion. Um, there is a very careful, very systematic, quite traditional uh, in a sense, social history uh, that has been written uh, of the Turner Rebellion by David Almendinger, uh, published quite recently, which is probably the most thorough attempt to uh, use um, the wider array of local sources, um, including local legal records, to contextualize the rebellion 
and its and the history of all of its participants, both white and black, um, uh, going back, tracing patterns of slave purchase, inheritance, buying, selling, movements amongst families within the region and so forth, going back over a long period of time. Uh, it's a really very um, thorough, exhaustively thorough, use of local records to create the basis for a social history, a social historical reconstruction of the circumstances within which the Turner Rebellion occurred. Um, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about the rebellion that we didn't know, but it confirms a great deal that uh, one could say was uh, uh, suspected or inferred rather than mm. proven, as it were. But you're interested, as you said earlier, in what is in Nat Turner's head. Um, and you yes. write in, in the acknowledgments that um, you had meant to write about Nat Turner, but you soon found yourself writing about God, <laughs> um, which is it's a, great, it's a very good line. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, in writing about God is the importance of the Gospel of Luke. Yes. Uh, when I when I've read uh, when I had read the Confessions originally, I was really I never put that together. Even though I was really struck by the emphasis on going up to Jerusalem, yes. uh, which, if you look, is a tremendous emphasis of the Gospel of Luke going yes. up to Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem, uh, Good Samaritan going down from Jerusalem. There's always movement up into Jerusalem. And lo and behold, that's what Nat Turner is doing in the yes. course of the rebellion. Um, so what is the importance then uh, for you of the Gospel of Luke to um, Nat Turner's uh, mentalité, uh, the way that he sees the world and the way that uh, he sees the world in such a way that leads to his uh, leading an insurrection? Well, I think there is a temptation. I mean, I start out by saying... Um, Attention to Turner as a uh, sophisticated um, uh, exponent of scripture is not, um, in any sense, uh, an innovation of mine. That has uh, been recognized as a characteristic of what I call Turner's mentality, his way, his way of thinking, his way of being. Um, we can go all, we can go back to uh, some of the really inspired literary readings of uh, Thomas Ruffin Gray's pamphlet mm -hmm. um, to uh, appreciate that. Um, but there is a tendency. I think amongst, uh, I would say, you know, scholars who are mostly secular, um, to think of um, biblical citation or mastery of scripture uh, in the sense of, well, you know, if a person is religious, uh, takes the Bible seriously is deeply um, uh, involved in um, um, religious belief, then they kind of 
scatter biblical citations into what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a nervous tick. I'm sorry. I like a nervous tick. Yeah, or yeah, ir- yeah. An irritable gesture. It's right. you know, it's there, but it's not you know. And it's sort of indiscriminate, you know. It's like being able to quote Shakespeare. You know, you can drop quotations in from this play, that play, whatever. So uh, a lot of the sort of examination of Turner as, or or Turner's discourse as religiously inflected discourse has simply looked for what might be this or that biblical impulse or citation in it. And it's been, it's kind of indiscriminate. Oh, here's a bit, you know, from, uh, here's a bit from Isaiah. Here's a bit from Matthew, whatever. Um, What I wanted to do was, uh, first of all, to take that, those citation practices very seriously, but more than that, I wanted to see whether they had a, uh, a, any form of systematic pattern to them. So basically, I spent a lot of time simply tracing uh, everything that could be identified as a uh, religious citation, uh, a biblical citation, seeing what one could build from that. Um, and I came to the conclusion that Turner is overwhelmingly influenced by the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Anybody who knows anything about the Bible will know that uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament are kind of interleaved with each other, that much of the discourse of the New Testament is a replication and inflection or reflection upon Old Testament events, Old Testament discourse. Nevertheless, uh, the pattern of what Turner says, how he expresses himself and so forth, uh, I think is overwhelmingly, uh, he's referring to uh, the New Testament. Um, And within that, his account is much more Lucan than it is from any other of the Gospels. One can find other gospel material in there, for sure, because the gospels themselves tend uh, to build one upon the other. Um, Nevertheless, his account is a Lucan account. There's more direct citation of Luke than anything else. Hmm. And the kind of the narrative, the story is a Lucan story. It is a progress, you might say, in that sort of classic sense. The progress of an intellect from a kind of a dawning self-awareness through a process of um, belief, discipleship, uh, struggle, um, self-realization as a sort of sanctified being of faith through to um, uh, a consciousness of himself as um, redeemer mm-hmm. and as 
Redeemer returned. And this is really, this is, this is Luke's progress. More than any of the other Gospels, Luke tells a very coherent sort of from to story, mm-hmm. uh, a narrative of Christ's life, works, and passion. Um, Luke also confronts the, more than the other Gospels, Luke confronts the moment of how early Christians had to confront the expectation of uh, the second coming and its deferment. Um, And Turner is conceiving of himself, I think, as the moment that finally, in, in, in his own narrative of himself, the first part of the Confessions, Turner conceives of himself as the fulfillment of that expectation. Um, and if you, I guess this is the final point, uh, one can, so I call it a, a the progress of a life. There's particular material in Luke that is not in any of the other Gospels that Turner uses in this account of himself. Um, so that's one thing, particular allusions um, to Christ's infancy, uh, to events prior to Christ's birth, and so forth. Um, and then there are particular events that are absolutely essential to the Christian account of uh, uh, the passion and the aftermath of the passion uh, and the idea of a second coming. Uh, these particular events that one can actually map out within Turner's own account of himself. So some of his imagery, uh, I argue, is, is direct imagery from the crucifixion there is direct imagery from the post-crucifixion account of Christ in the book of Revelation um, and the and Revelation's account of the ultimate uh, move toward the last judgment and kind of the, the end of the end of history, you might say. No, that might not surprise people. Revelation, apocalyptic preachers, crazy. You know, this is all. This is crazy. That 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 that, that might um, actually reinforce prejudices. Um, but, what I found uh, powerful and persuasive was the uh, way in which uh, you would. Matt Turner, actually, uh, draw upon Jesus's sermon, first sermon, perhaps, and, and Luke in um, in Nazareth, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a, a messianic proclamation from Isaiah, and yes. um, which he then, uh, after the scroll is returned, he says, these things have been fulfilled in your in your hearing. Then the, the movement, there's a great movement then out from the synagogue to take him to kill him. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it's a particularly relevant then to, I think that fits into your idea then of counter sovereignty. Uh-huh. Um, Jesus is announcing uh, in Nazareth, uh, the place of his uh, adolescence, he's announcing his sovereignty. He's yes. announcing the sovereignty of the Messiah. 
Uh, and Nat Turner is also announcing a counter sovereignty. Could you uh, tease that idea out a little bit, please? Uh, yeah. Um, Turner, um, I think, um, uh, is the sovereignty that Turner represents himself. Uh, as fulfilling is the sovereignty. You know, is the so- this is why I, I say I find myself writing about God. You know, this mm-hmm. is God's kingdom on earth mm-hmm. uh, fulfilled. Uh, it is a, a sovereignty that is to be erected over that profane sovereignty, that that profane and wicked sovereignty uh, that is the experience. Uh, the actual experience of Turner and his, you know, his comrades um, in the, the sovereignty of slaveholding in uh, in 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 their Virginia, um, and so uh, counter sovereignty becomes this idea that there is a form of um, you know that. Their faith, or his faith, because I can't speak. Nobody, one cannot speak of the faith of anybody else except, except of, of Turner's. But that the, the, the they are, uh, or he is, uh, making a claim uh, of a form of power, of uh, a form of legitimate power, um, other than that uh, which. Uh, appears embodied in the secular profane state. Um, so so it's, it's a very, you know, the, this interpretation is, of course, uh, it resonates with, you know, the moment in which we live, which is a moment of... Uh, uh, in the last 20 years or the last 30 years, it has seen uh, around us um, in either peaceful or violent terms, a series of claims both in our culture, in, in, in American culture or in other cultures for a, uh, a, a sovereignty of that which, is, which counters the profane and the secular. Mm-hmm. So that's this is informing my view of Turner, but I think it it allows me to understand Turner in very similar terms. Yeah, and just to I I looked this up as you were talking uh, uh, the what Jesus quotes and that in, in this has such relevance for Turner's case. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Um, I mean, it's hard not to see what he would make of that. I mean, of course, of course, it would mean something to him. I think uh, there there has been a tendency, and I, I, I make some allusion to this, there has been a tendency... Um, to to go to Isaiah. This is this is kind of returning to the biblical sprinkling 
mm-hmm. um, comment that I, that, I, that I offered a few minutes ago. There has been a tendency to, to, to sort of to go to Isaiah for that for the one. I'm glad you read all of that because mm-hmm. people tend to read liberty to the captives and they stop at that point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if you know one is using the Bible as a sort of spark notes for yeah. for a for a slave insurrection. Um, um, the whole. Is um, it's a much it's a much more holistic claim than simply um, set the captives free. Uh, it's a claim about a whole way of thinking about how one lives, yes, um, or how one should live or will live. It's a new um, a, a new order of the heavens and the earth as, yes, as well. Uh, and another thing that I try to I try to bring to the surface is both in that chapter on 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 Styron. Styron has Styron has some things to say about Christianity, but they are uh, um, he has a conception of what New Testament Christianity looks like. Um, if you read the Gospels, you know this. This is not a sort of happy, sappy Christianity. You know, all guitars and sandals, um, and 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 um, uh, speaking of the love of you know the love of Christ and so forth. Um, Christ is a militant. You know, Christ mm-hmm. is not uh, in the Gospels. Christ is a militant Jew. You can think back to Pasolini's Gospel of St. Matthew, Christ is a Revolutionary. Um, this wonderful movie on uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Um, and there is a great deal of a quite violent language in um, the New Testament that does not at all accord with a sort of benevolent and forgiving Christ. Um, you know, as Luke has Christ say, you know, uh, who are those who will not, who are those who reject my, you know, my, who are those who reject my dominion? Come bring them, come bring them to me and slay them before me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not quite exactly, but to that effect. So I want to say that this, this uh, this New Testament militancy that I find in Turner's uh, in how Turner expresses himself um, is of real importance to understanding what he means by Countess, rather by what I infer him. To mean when I talk about counter sovereignty, mm-hmm. and that counter sovereignty also then uh, leads almost inevitably to the work of death, to yes. why a bloody in, a insurrection or a rebellion is both um, tolerable, not just tolerable, but necessary. Right, right, and that's a, that's a, that's a in in the book uh, and intellectually for myself, it's a very it's a very difficult transition to to comprehend. Uh, first of all, because you know, I made a constant a, con, uh, a, 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 
a conscious decision that having tried to unpack Turner's religious mentality, his, his, uh, to take his action and uh, beliefs as a person of faith deadly seriously, um, it was also incumbent upon me to take his actions as the leader of what is in effect a massacre uh, over those first 15, 12 to 15 hours. Also, to take that deadly seriously, to try to divine its meaning. Um, in the pamphlet, uh, the pamphlet is really no help. The Confessions of Matt Turner is really no help in that regard because the transition from uh, the language of faith to the language of death is so extraordinarily abrupt uh, without any self-justification, no justification of language about you know revenge or revolutionary intent or justification or whatever. He doesn't intend really attempt to justify himself. Um, as you know, because you've read or you've certainly acquainted yourself with, with, with the book, um, I try to explain that transition by um, introducing uh, work by the, the, the Danish theologian and philosopher uh, Sharon Kierkegaard, um, because Kierkegaard writes this extraordinary book, Fear and Trembling, um, in 1840, which is an account of, an, or rather not an account of so much as a, a, a grappling with um, God's injunction uh, to Abraham to sacrifice his son. Um, and what Kierkegaard finds so extraordinary about that is not that God relents, as of course we all know God relents at the last moment, but rather that Abraham is entirely willing, I mean reluctant, but willing to do as God wishes, precisely because he is a person of faith. And this is the, the, the importance of the story lies in, the, in Abraham's faith and his demonstration of faith rather than in God's uh, uh, withdrawal, as it mm -hmm. were, of the request that, or of the injunction that he kill uh, his son. So Turner, to me, is absolutely, he's, he's what Kierkegaard calls a knight of faith, um, and this is inexplicable in ethical terms, precisely because ethics is the, the realm of the universals that secular humanity deals in, mm -hmm. uh, but that it is, an in, it is an act of, it is faith in action and as such incomprehensible in any, in any terms other than faith. And that is what I think, that is Turner's motivation there. I'm trying to explain his motivation. He's acting purely out of faith in God. 
God has told mm-hmm. him to do something and he does it. And I, I don't try to say that this is easy for him. It's not. There are indications, there are these little indications in, in his own discourse. That this is deeply stressful, highly problematic. Nevertheless, uh, it's something that he undertakes. Um, I also want to say that that simply explains Turner. That doesn't necessarily explain any of the action of his uh, of his comrades, of, of other right. participants. Um, uh, and I try to also ex- describe how it seems to me, again, you know, extrapolating from reports, uh, from trial reports, evidence in trial reports, and from the pamphlet, how Turner is engaged in a sort of politics of persuasion, that this is what they... This is what he has been told to do. This is what they must do. And I try to explain what I, it seems to me, the significance of the participation in this work of death or killing um, as uh, in terms of um, the formation of a form of self-consciousness that is other than the self-consciousness of subordination. Mm -hmm. Well, let's um, move beyond even Turner's um, own agonizing execution um, and uh, increase the frame a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You are, after all, a historian of the law, and uh, Turner's rebellion, as it so happened, um, well, he he might even have said providentially, occurred at the same time as well, to my mind, one of the most interesting constitutional conventions in American history, uh, which is the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1831. And we've got two people on the line who've actually, um, you've probably read a lot more of it than I have, but I've read a lot of the debates uh-huh. in that co- convention because it's it's an, it's an a it's a damned interesting political and legal event. Um, in many ways, it's the end of the early American Republic. Um, it's an, a, a very strong, sharp period, uh, and uh, it marks it has it conveniently marks a transition um, from one American order to another sort of American order. Now, you, um, I think it's Thomas Roderick Dew who said that it was uh, Turner's rebellion was trivial and farcical. Um, you give uh, strong evidence that that's not exactly the way uh, people treated it. Um, and you go through the transition in the convention. Could you briefly describe the convention and how the convention dealt? This is, an, I know, a terribly immense question to answer, but how did the convention grapple with Nat Turner's insurrection? Um, the well, we've got we've actually got two events here rather than one. That's right. The the eighteen twenty nine to thirty one constitutional convention, which occurs before the rebellion and the slavery debate within the House of Delegates, the, within the, right, the newly right. constituted House of Delegates, that occurs after. Um, now, it's certainly the case. Uh, a lot of attention has been given to the uh, slavery debate, uh, that is the debate over the possibility of actually emancipating Virginia's slaves that uh, occurs after the rebellion and more or less as a consequence of the rebellion. 
Um, but <laughs> in the 1829-31 convention, um, what you have is an arg essentially an argument that has been developing over the previous 30 years between uh, essentially it's complicated it's complicated it's complex everything's complicated you know but I mean essentially <laughs> right. um, uh, Virginia as a state is increasingly sectionalized between a slaveholding east the old tidewater plus tidewater slaveholders that have expanded over the previous century into the Piedmont. Um, so you have Tidewater and Piedmont slaveholders, more or less an Eastern interest, um, well-established. You have a, a more uh, recently settled a Western section of the state beyond the Blue Ridge, which is now, of course, West Virginia, uh, but at that time was all part of the same state which is um, a very different form of economy, subsistence, agriculture, pastoral farming, a few pockets of slavery here and there, particularly in Kanawha County in, in the coal mines, mm -hmm. but otherwise very little, you know, much, much sparser slaveholding. And the development of a, of a politics um, in West Virginia of anti-slavery, of antagonism to slavery. Well, not, certainly anti-slaveholders. Yes, yes. I mean, antagonism to slavery as, a, as, as, as an expression of the political power and yes. economic power of Eastern slaveholders. Um, um, after all, unlike the American Constitutional Convention, the Virginia slaveholders were certain that uh, slave population would count uh, towards their representation. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and they maintain the, the, the power of the eastern uh, seaboard and, and Piedmont counties um, uh, and thus protect their own interests uh, against this increasingly vociferous uh, antagonism to the way the uh, revolutionary constitution tilts power in that direction that is coming from the West. So in 1829, the West actually manages to, to achieve a constitutional convention, and the convention then debates you know, both um, uh, suffrage and the form of representation uh, over a long period. Um, and in the course of those debates, which basically end in a kind of draw or a compromise mm -hmm. between the two sections with some uh, relief of um, both some some concessions in both representation, uh, form of representation and suffrage, but um, uh, pretty piecemeal. Over the course of that uh, long convention, you do have considerable attention paid to slavery and uh, attitudes about slavery voiced uh, and slaveholders voiced in the course of the of uh, 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 that convention, um, I suppose you know just just to, to give one a taste, the, the, the there is a discourse which um, begins to enter convention uh, debates uh, uh, of um, you know, the West calling um, the Eastern Eastern slaveholders a, a, a sort of an illegitimate aristocracy. Uh, lording itself over a major, over a democratic majority, 
and you know eastern slaveholders respond by calling the west uh, sort of pe- a, a peasantry a peasantry mm-hmm. that is um uh, uh, seeking kind of seeking um uh, to represent itself as as uh, as justly independent whereas in fact it's uh it's its economy is one of sort of dependency and subsistence mm-hmm. um so we have this this face off which in, includes uh considerable criticism of slaveholders and of slaveholding um followed by um the you know followed by the 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 the, the uh vote on a new constitution and the, the, the which occurs in, in early eighteen you know, early eighteen thirty one. Um Turner's rebellion comes several months after that. It's not there is no clear connection between these two events. There are some indications that uh, uh, slaves were aware of the um, convention, uh, at mm-hmm. least to the extent of understanding that whites were arguing with each other about something and took part of that argument to be the possibility that they made, that, that emancipation was, 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 was being debated, which it was not. But, mm-hmm. um, so then you have the rebellion, and then uh, after the rebellion, um, um, uh, rising expressions of white disquiet, uh, both you know in slaveholding areas, uh, about the threat from the free black population, um, which is always controversial. That is mm-hmm. that that population is always controversial. Um, Amongst whites, and the possibility of actual beginning a form, beginning an emancipation, a gradual emancipation of Virginia slaves, and that is seriously expressed in uh, in, in petitioning to the um, House of Delegates, um, which enters its its new session in December, um, and by January finds itself engaged in. A debate about the possibility of emancipation, and uh, this—I mean—it's obviously unsuccessful. Um, yes. and uh, you know, Philip Schwartz used to argue that it was never anywhere near possibility. Uh, possibility, um, but one thing you highlight, and what I've noticed, is that this is the first time uh, in the in Virginia. Uh, that people begin to make uh, go from the tragic slavery as tragic necessity to slavery as positive good. Right. Um, this the heat of the moment then drives people to a really genuine, uh, thoroughgoing pro-slavery ideology. Already, you know, there's already that in South Carolina, arguably is uh, the 1790s, um, but in Virginia it had not it had been long delayed. Uh, but then people begin to make that argument. Yes, that's correct. Um, and that is articulated under the pressure of the debate. Uh, you see uh, both sides, pro and anti-slaveholding, 
uh, expressing themselves in more and more kind of um, unvarnished terms, mm-hmm. um, yeah. such that um, uh, the emancipist side, the anti-slaveholding side of the debate, uh, which is largely, again, you know, it's from the Western counties, um, argues that slavery could be tolerated only so long as this form of property did not pose a threat to public order, but now clearly it did pose a threat to public order, so uh, it should not be tolerated. And you have slaveholders on the other side saying, you know, both, uh, as you intimated, um, this particular instance of a threat to public order was, you know, farcical and local, um, quickly dealt with. Um, uh, they say at one point, alluding to the circumstances um, on the second day of the second full day of the rebellion, you know, oh, look, you know, Nat Turner and his, uh, and his um, band were defeated by two men and a boy with with their shotguns well charged, you know, um, which alludes to one of the incidents in, in, in confrontations between whites and, 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 and the, the group of rebels. Um, and that you know, the, the event of the rebellion is no threat uh, that people have recovered from it, it's isolated. Um, and uh, they move on from that to uh, uh, the series of claims that not only are Virginia's interests um, allied to the con- to continued economic interests allied, allied to continued slaveholding, but that slaveholding itself is not, uh, as has been the discourse uh, for a long time, simply a sort of tragic, as you put it, a tragic necessity foisted upon Virginia by an uncaring imperial metropolis Mm -hmm. uh, that refused to allow Virginians to abandon the slave trade during the uh, colonial epoch. Um, but it is, in fact, uh, uh, Benjamin Watkins Lee, for example, calls it you know, a, a, a dispensation of the almighty, a duty, a positive good. Um, and then one, one finds this argument developed uh, most completely, uh, the set of arguments developed most completely by Thomas Roderick Dew uh, in his account of the uh, slavery debate uh, published some months after the debate comes to a sort of chaotic halt. I wanted to uh, wrap this up by, um, but by then um, wondering how you came to Nat Turner um, and uh-huh. what drew you to him and how, how you read Styron's novel. That was the first time. And yes. it's been a, been a long time coming. You indicate in the acknowledgements. Well, I, um, I had, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, go ahead. Just I to... had, um, 
the first book of William Styron's that I read was Darkness, or was his um, um, uh, Darkness Invisible, his account of his of his um, uh, of his depression. Uh, depression. Yeah. Uh, Darkness Visible, um, and um, that intrigued me about him as as a writer, and so. The, Second book. This is this is you know many many years ago when I was you know young, <laughs> and uh, then I read the Confessions of Matt Turner and I thought it was interesting. Um, uh, I thought it was also kind of um, I, I am not, I am not a great fan of Styron as a writer. That is his style which I find kind of uh, needlessly. It's sort of very florid, very portentous in many ways. Well, um, you, you make that clear. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's, just, that's just sort of my subjective impression, you know. And, you know, Darkness Visible is actually written in a much sparer mm-hmm. form, which is so, something that I, I enjoyed reading. Um, but, and, and the content, you know, the content is challenging. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, I, I I also read uh, Gray's pamphlet for the first time as a result of reading Styron's Confessions, um, and you know, I didn't. I found I found the idea of Turner intriguing, very intriguing, as this this person, this slave who had had an opportunity and took it actually to talk. Uh, at a relatively, you know, in, a, in an extended fashion, uh, unprecedented for a slave, really, um, except uh, in, in, in very few other circumstances, uh, about both uh, himself and, and, and the, the event of the, the rebellion. Um, and I kind of put it aside. It was still there in the back of my head for a long time, but nothing that I ever planned to do anything about, really. And then um, doing some complete, doing some rather different research um, when I was actually interested in... I was interested in um, uh, the, law of in, the law of industrial accidents, the history of the law of industrial accidents. <laughs> Right, so um, I was actually doing a lot of research um, in uh, sources uh, here and there um, in the first like forty years, fifty years of the nineteenth century, uh, and I was I was looking for instances of you know work injuries described. In, in, in materials, um, and uh, I was doing a lot of work in uh, in and around Boston, and um, at one stage started going through records in the Baker Library at Harvard Business School, um, and uh, they had um, records of um, various construction projects uh, in and around Boston. And I started looking at the papers of uh, a guy called Loami Baldwin Jr. <laughs> well, actually, it was father, father and son, both the same, the same name. Yeah. 
His father uh, was an engineer in the Continental Army, I think. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And they, they, you know, his father was a designer and builder of canals, prime canal, canals and yeah. roads. Yeah. And the son um, was a more kind of instructed engineer, more of a theoretical engineer. And um, so I thought, you know, these are these are large construction projects. I'll find instances of injuries and so forth if there, if I'm going to find them anywhere. Um, and as I was looking at records of the two dry docks that um, Baldwin Jr. was commissioned to design and build, uh, one in Charlestown, uh, Massachusetts, the other in Norfolk, Virginia, um, I came across in the Norfolk records uh, this uh, really interesting uh, series of, uh, and really quite voluminously documented, uh, series of accounts of a dispute that occurred on the Norfolk Dry Dock about um, the use of slave labor, um, where Basically, Baldwin is accused of profiteering of the use of slave labor by uh, by white artisans uh, who have traveled to Norfolk, Virginia to seek employment uh, and have been rebuffed by Baldwin because they can't work as hard as the slaves he has hired can work. And he has various reasons for wanting to use slave labor on the dry dock. Um, uh, to uh, because he, he's he's running over budget on that project. Um, so all of that is kind of incidental, but right in the middle of it, um, the Turner Rebellion occurs, and there is there is a kind of an account of the impact of the rebellion uh, within this dispute within the lo the, the locality of Norfolk, um, which is really interesting because you know I think. I think of the Turner Rebellion in some ways as I've described my approach to it as to some people as, as kind of like, you know, when you throw a rock into a pool, uh, you know, there's a splash and then there are ripples and the ripples go all over the place. And sometimes you find traces of this event mm -hmm. in other places where that are sort of unlikely. So the, the, the impact of the Turner Rebellion on the dispute over hiring slaves in the dry dock uh, I found I found really interesting, and this was the. And I actually wrote a a, a an article uh, about it, primarily about the sources themselves, mm -hmm. uh, but also about you know the the, the sort of this. Uh, it's a very roundabout road. Yeah, uh, and, that's, and, and that forms now a section of your uh, final chapter too. Right, that because dry, it, dry it's dry. actually as I as I now understand it in 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 the circumstances of the issues that were ongoing in Virginia politics at the time and the final kind of uh, analysis of those debates offered by uh, Thomas Roderick Dew, it becomes a really interesting instance of the set of issues involving the circulation of labor in Virginia mm -hmm. at, at that time. Um, so it was. A, it, it turned out to me, at least in my eyes, it turned out that this dispute in Norfolk became a way 
of moving in that final chapter from talking about what was going on in the Constitutional Convention to the debates that occurred in the Virginia House of Delegates uh, discussing emancipation. Yes. Um, you have uh, one of the things I really admire about the book is your talent for epigrammatic expression. <laughs> um, I mean, it really is. You you can really turn a phrase. And I wanted to conclude our conversation by um, reading one of these to, to reading one of these to you right. and uh, having you uh, comment on it. You say it at the perhaps the last sentences. I have to I have to check. We who are readers of texts, who are historians. If we are to read as true historians, we must always be ready to read what was never written. Always. Right. What do you mean by that? Um, well, there are... First of all, thank you for the, thank you for the, the, the compliment. Um, um, the last sentence, and you're, you're quite correct, that is the last sentence of the book. Um, the, that sentence refers back to the epigraph to the final chapter, which is the epilogue to the book. Um, uh, uh, and the, 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 the epigraph, uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm now going to do what you did and, and, and read it, if I may. <laughs> Um, so this is, this is um, um, uh, from Walter Benjamin, uh, just before his death in 1940. And he writes, um, if one looks upon history as a text, then one can say of it what a recent author has said of literary texts, namely that the past has left in them images comparable to those registered by a light sensitive plate. Uh, and then he quotes the future. He quotes from that author. He says, "The future alone possesses developers strong enough to reveal the image in all its details." Um, and he continues with his own thought. He says, "The historical method is a philological method based on the Book of Life. Read what was never written." Runs a line in Hoffmannsthal, referring to Hugo von Hoffmannsthal. The reader one should think of here is the true historian. So what, what, Benjamin, what Benjamin is saying is that, and this is really when I said, right at the beginning of our conversation, I said, you know, I'm like Styron in a sense, I am writing a meditation on history. That is a meditation on, the, on, on, on how one writes history, on how one creates history, constructs history. And in my view, one is always, the historian is always writing from the moment in which the historian exists. Uh, so the history is constructed from the now in which we write it. Um, and what we are doing when we are constructing history in the now in which we write it is um, uh, becoming aware of that which attracts our attention uh, and recognizing it and wondering why it is that that which we have, which has attracted our attention, that past moment or event or circumstance or whatever, why it is that that now has imposed itself upon us, uh, come to us, sprung up before us. 
demanded our attention. Um, and Benjamin is saying in, the, in that epigraph, and this is a very Benjaminian book, um, Benjamin is saying in that epigraph, uh, the past is only to be understood from those moments in the future at which it can be deciphered. Um, for that reason, uh, we read what was never written. That is, we discover what was not there to be discovered because our perspective from where we are allows us that discovery. It allows us to read what was not then written. Um, the, the sort of the image that Benjamin uses to describe this way of thinking about history is, is, is a sort of a constellation. If you take a constellation of stars in the heavens, uh, we, from our point of view, our perspective, you know, we can look at the sky and we see, you know, Orion's belt, or we see the Great Bear, uh, or we see Cassiopeia. Uh, those images are our images. They don't exist in what we're looking at. Hmm. Uh, the stars of Orion's belt are not three stars, you know, sitting in that nice straight line as they appear. They're, you know, they are vastly different, vast differences from each other. And if you take another point somewhere else in the heavens, some other planet to stand upon and look at them, you won't see that. Um, mm. so, the, so what we see is constructed from the position that we occupy. But that's, that's one meaning of read what was never written. Um, but it, it has a kind of second meaning too, which um, in the book, uh, just before that final sentence, um, there is, um, again, there's a way, you know, one struggles to end things or to find ways of ending things. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have uh, inserted there, you know, right before the end, um, an extract from a poem by, by Aimé Césaire, who is this uh, wonderful uh, Afro-Caribbean uh, poet um, and politician. Um, uh, and the, the extract is from a uh, from a poem, the, the title of which translates, and the dogs were silent. Um, and really, it, it's, it's a narrative, this, this, this part of the poem is a narrative of a confrontation and bloody conclusion to that confrontation between a slave owner and a slave. Um, what's really interesting about the the, the moment is that it's sort of pregnant with meaning, huge pregnant with meaning, but the, the expression of it, Cesar's expression of it, is as a series of statements and, and ellipses, or in other words, statements and silences. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying in that final sentence is, in a sense, you could read the whole 
of the account of Turner and of his rebellion, you could read it just in those few sentences and those silences, because in a sense, those few sentences with their silences say all that's necessary to be said. There is a master, there is a, con a slave, there is a confrontation. They recognize each other. Then he's frightened, and I hit him, and I kill him. And that's, that's the end. That's all the, the, in a sense, that's what the poem says. So if you, what I then finish the book by saying is, we have then to go beyond that. We have to read what is not written there. And that gives us the full history. If you see what I mean. Oh, yeah. My guest today has been Chris Tomlins. His most recent book is In the Matter of Nat Turner. Chris Tomlins, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for this wonderful and generous opportunity to, to talk about the book. I appreciate it. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.